Book One, Chapter Two, Sections Five, Six, and Seven of In the Days of the Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lewis. Section Five. For a long time, I feared I should have to go back to Clayton without another word to Nettie. She seemed insensible to the need I felt for a talk with her, and I was thinking even of a sudden demand for that before them all. It was a transparent maneuver of her mother's, who had been watching my face, that sent us out at last together to do something. I forgot now what, in one of the greenhouses. Whatever that little mission may have been, it was the merest, most barefaced excuse. A door to shut or a window to close, and I don't think it got done. Nettie hesitated and obeyed. She led the way through one of the hothouses. It was a low, steamy, brick-floored alley between staging that bore a close crowd of pots and ferns and behind big branching plants that were spread and nailed overhead so as to make an impervious cover of leaves and in that close green privacy she stopped and turned on me suddenly like a creature at bay isn't the maidenhair fern lovely she said and looked at me with eyes that said now nettie i began i was a fool to write to you as i did she startled me by the assent that flashed out upon her face, but she said nothing and stood waiting. Nettie, I plunged, I can't do without you. I, I love you. If you loved me, she said trimly, watching the white fingers she plunged among the green branches of a selaginella, could you write the things you do to me? I don't mean them, I said, at least not always. I thought really they were very good letters, and that Nettie was stupid to think otherwise, but I was for the moment clearly aware of the impossibility of conveying that to her. You wrote them, but then I tramped seventeen miles to say I don't mean them. Yes, but perhaps you do. I think I was at a loss. Then I said, but not very clearly, I don't. You think you, you love me, Willie, but you don't. I do, Nettie, you know I do. For answer, she shook her head. I made what I thought was a most heroic plunge. Nettie, I said, I'd rather have you than, than my own opinions. The selaginella still engaged her. You think so now, she said. I broke out into protestations. No, she said shortly, it's different now. But why should two letters make so much difference, I said. It isn't only the letters, but it is different. It's different for good. She halted a little with that sentence, seeking her expression. She looked up abruptly into my eyes and moved, indeed slightly, but with the intimation that she thought our talk might end. But I did not mean it to end like that. For good, said I. No, Nettie. Nettie, you don't mean that. I do, she said deliberately, still looking at me, and with all her poise conveying her finality, 
she seemed to brace herself for the outbreak that must follow. Of course I became wordy, but I did not submerge her. She stood entrenched, firing her contradictions like guns into my scattered discursive attack. I remember that our talk took the absurd form of disputing whether I could be in love with her or not. And there was I, present in evidence, in a deepening and widening distress of soul because she could stand there, defensive, brighter and prettier than ever, and in some inexplicable way cut off from me and inaccessible. You know, we had never been together before without little enterprises of endearment, without a faintly guilty, quite delightful excitement. I pleaded, I argued, I tried to show that even my harsh and difficult letters came from my desire to come wholly into contact with her. I made exaggerated, fine statements of the longings I felt for her when I was away, of the shock and misery of finding her estranged and cool. She looked at me, feeling the emotion of my speech, and impervious to its ideas. I had no doubt, whatever poverty in my words, coolly written down now, that I was eloquent then. I meant most intensely what I said. Indeed, I was wholly concentrated upon it. I was set upon conveying to her with absolute sincerity my sense of distance and the greatness of my desire. I toiled towards her painfully and obstinately through a jungle of words. Her face changed very slowly, by such imperceptible degrees as when at dawn light comes into a clear sky. I could feel that I touched her, that her hardness was in some manner melting, her determination softening toward hesitations. The habit of an old familiarity lurked somewhere within her, but she would not let me reach her. No, she cried abruptly, starting into motion. She laid a hand on my arm. A wonderful new friendliness came into her voice. It's impossible, Willie. Everything is different now. Everything. We made a mistake. We two young sillies made a mistake, and everything is different forever. Yes, yes. She turned about. Nettie, cried I, and still protesting, pursued her along the narrow alley between the staging towards the hothouse door. I pursued her like an accusation, and she went before me like one who is guilty and ashamed. So I recall it now. She would not let me talk to her again. Yet I could see that my talk to her had altogether abolished the clear-cut distance of our meeting in the park. Ever and again I found her hazel eyes upon me. They expressed something novel, a surprise, as though she realized an unwanted relationship and a sympathetic pity, and still something defensive. When we got back to the cottage, I fell talking rather more freely with her father about the nationalization of railways, and my spirit and temper had so far mended at the realization that I could still produce an effect upon Nettie that I was even playful with Puss. Miss Stewart judged from that that things were better with me than they were, and began to beam mightily. But Nettie remained thoughtful and said very little. 
she was lost in perplexities i could not fathom and presently she slipped away from us and went upstairs section six i was of course too footsore to walk back to clayton but i had a shilling and a penny in my pocket for the train between checkshill and the two-mile stone and that much of the distance i proposed to do in the train and when i got ready to go nettie amazed me by waking up to the most remarkable solicitude for me i must she said go by the road it was altogether too dark for the short way to the lodge gates i pointed out that it was moonlight with the comet thrown in said old stuart no she insisted you must go by the road i still disputed she was standing near me to please me she urged in a quick undertone and with a persuasive look that puzzled me even in the moment i asked myself why should this please her i might have agreed had she not followed that up with the hollies by the shrubbery are as dark as pitch, and there's the deerhounds. I'm not afraid of the dark, said I, nor of the deerhounds either. But those dogs, supposing one was loose? That was a girl's argument, a girl who still had to understand that fear is an overt argument only for her own sex i thought too of those grisly lank brutes straining at their chains and the chorus they could make of a night when they heard belated footsteps along the edge of the killing wood and the thought banished my wish to please her like most imaginative natures i was acutely capable of dreads and retreats and constantly occupied with their suppression and concealment and to refuse the short cut when it might appear that i did it on account of half a dozen almost certainly chained dogs was impossible so i set off in spite of her feeling valiant and glad to be so easily brave but a little sorry that she should think herself crossed by me a thin cloud veiled the moon and the way under the beeches was dark and indistinct I was not so preoccupied with my love affairs as to neglect what I will confess was always my custom at night across that wild and lonely park. I made myself a club by fastening a big flint to one end of my twisted handkerchief and tying the other about my wrist, and with this in my pocket went on comforted. And it chanced that as I emerged from the hollies by the corner of the shrubbery, i was startled to come unexpectedly upon a young man in evening dress smoking a cigar i was walking on turf so that the sound i made was slight he stood clear in the moonlight his cigar glowed like a blood-red star and it did not occur to me at the time that i advanced toward him almost invisibly in an impenetrable shadow hello he cried with a sort of amiable challenge i am here first I came out into the light. "'Who cares if you are?' said I. I had jumped at once to an interpretation of his words. I knew that there was an intermittent dispute between the house-people and the villager public about the use of this track, and it is needless to say where my sympathies fell in that dispute. "'Eh?' he cried in surprise. "'Thought I would run away, I suppose,' said I, and came close up to him. 
all my enormous hatred of his class had flared up at the sight of his costume at the fancied challenge of his words i knew him he was edward verrall son of the man who owned not only this great estate but more than half of rawdon's pot bank and who had interest and possessions collieries and rents all over the district of the four towns he was a gallant youngster people said and very clever young as he was there was talk of parliament for him he had been a great success at the university and he was being sedulously popularized among us he took with a light confidence as a matter of course advantages that i would have faced the rack to get and i firmly believed myself a better man than he he was as he stood there a concentrated figure of all that filled me with bitterness one day he had stopped in a motor outside our house and i remember the thrill of rage with which i had noted the dutiful admiration in my mother's eyes as she peered through her blind at him that's young mr verrall she said they say he's very clever they would i answered damn them and him but that is by the way he was clearly astonished to find himself face to face with a man his note changed who the devil are you he asked my retort was the cheap expedient of re-echoing who the devil are you well he said i'm coming along this path if i like i said see it's a public path just as this used to be public land you've stolen the land you and yours and now you want to steal the right of way you'll ask us to get off the face of the earth next i shan't oblige see i was shorter and i suppose a couple of years younger than he but i had the improvised club in my pocket gripped ready and i would have fought with him very cheerfully but he fell a step backward as i came toward him socialist i presume he said alert and quiet with the faintest note of badinage one of many we're all socialists nowadays he remarked philosophically and i haven't the faintest intention of disputing your right of way you better not i said no no he replaced his cigar and there was a brief pause catching a train he threw out it seemed absurd not to answer yes i said shortly he said it was a pleasant evening for a walk i hovered for a moment and there was my path before me and he stood aside there seemed nothing to do but go on good night said he as that intention took effect i growled a surly good night i felt like a bombshell of swearing that must presently burst with some violence as i went on my silent way he had so completely got the best of our encounter Section 7 There comes a memory, an odd intermixture of two entirely divergent things, that stands out with the intensest vividness. As I went across the last open meadow, following the shortcut to Chexhill Station, I perceived I had two shadows. The thing jumped into my mind and stopped its tumid flow for a moment. I remember the intelligent detachment of my sudden interest. 
I turned sharply and stood looking at the moon and the great white comet that the drift of the clouds had now rather suddenly unveiled. The comet was perhaps twenty degrees from the moon. What a wonderful thing it looked floating there, a greenish-white apparition in the dark blue deeps. It looked brighter than the moon because it was smaller, but the shadow it cast, though clearer cut, was much fainter than the moon's shadow. I went on, noting these facts, watching my two shadows precede me. I am totally unable to account for the sequence of my thoughts on this occasion, but suddenly, as if I had come on this new fact round a corner, the comet was out of my mind again, and I was face to face with an absolutely new idea. I wonder sometimes if the two shadows I cast, one with a sort of feminine faintness with regard to the other, and not quite so tall, may not have suggested the word or the thought of an assignation to my mind. All that I have clear is that with the certitude of intuition I knew what it was that had brought the youth in the evening dress outside the shrubbery. Of course, he had come to meet Nettie. Once the mental process was started, it took no time at all. The day, which had been full of perplexities for me, the mysterious invisible thing that had held Nettie and myself apart, the unaccountable strange something in her manner, was revealed and explained. I knew now why she had looked guilty at my appearance, what had brought her out that afternoon, why she had hurried me in, the nature of the book she had run back to fetch, the reason why she had wanted me to go back by the high road, and why she had pitied me. It was all in the instant clear to me. You must imagine me, a black little creature, suddenly stricken still, for a moment standing rigid, and then again suddenly becoming active with an impotent gesture, becoming audible with an inarticulate cry, with two little shadows mocking my dismay. And about this figure you must conceive a great wide space of moonlit grass, rimmed by the looming suggestion of distant trees trees very low and faint and dim and over it all the domed serenity of that wonderful luminous night for a little while this realization stunned my mind my thoughts came to a pause staring at my discovery meanwhile my feet in my previous direction carried me through the warm darkness to chexhill station with its little lights to the ticket office window, and so to the train. I remember myself, as it were, waking up to the thing. I was alone in one of the dingy third-class compartments of that time, and the sudden, nearly frantic insurgence of my rage. I stood up with the cry of an angry animal, and smote my fist with all my strength against the panel of wood before me. Curiously enough, I have completely forgotten my mood after that for a little while. But I know that later, for a minute perhaps, I hung for a time out of the carriage with the door open, contemplating a leap from the train. It was to be a dramatic leap, and then I would go storming back to her, denounce her, overwhelm her, and I hung, urging myself to do it. I don't remember how it was I decided not to do this, at last, but in the end I didn't. When the train stopped at the next station, 
I had given up all thoughts of going back. I was sitting in the corner of the carriage, with my bruised and wounded hand pressed under my arm, and still insensible to its pain, trying to think out clearly a scheme of action, action that should express the monstrous indignation that possessed me. End of Book 1, Chapter 2, Sections 5, 6, and 7